Support comes from Clipper Vacations, offering getaways on the Clipper Fast Ferry to Victoria, B.C. Clipper Ferry and hotel packages from $250 per person. Enjoy historic charm, afternoon tea, and more. Terms and conditions apply. Details and booking at clippervacations.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your, I'm your Bill Radke. I'm not just your host, Bill Radke. I'm your Bill Radke. Yeah, see, you're welcome to me. Um, today on the show, if you might not know how your phone works, you could be a high-ranking city of Seattle official who doesn't keep text messages regarding an issue of intense public interest and uh, and not face charges over it. We'll discuss that and other uh, items that took place this week. With my panel, we have Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman. Hi, David. Let's get everybody's microphones on. Host, writer, and producer, Angela Poe Russell. Welcome back, Angela. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks for having me. I hear that. KOW online editor, Dyer Oxley. Hi, Dyer. Good afternoon. And we're putting the show up on uh, the web. You can watch this program on YouTube or Facebook if you search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, our first topic, it is uh, international news, actually. Our mayor is sending condolences. City councilors are calling for punishment. A Seattle police officer and Guild vice president is heard on his body cam video laughing as he discusses a fatal collision the day before in which another Seattle officer speeding on a call hit and killed a pedestrian named Janabi Kandula. Here is the officer in the video, Daniel Otterer, telling the union president what happened. Yeah, I mean, he's going 50 that's not out of control. That's not reckless for a trained driver. Okay, first of all, the officer was not going 50. The police department's own analysis had him going 74 miles per hour right before he hit the brakes and he hit the woman going about 70 in a 25-mile-per-hour zone as she walked in a well-lit crosswalk. As for whether the driver was out of control, you obviously don't have to be out of control to hit someone you don't see as you speed into an intersection. Here's a little more of the audio. Yeah, lights and sirens. Lights and sirens. The driving officer was not running his siren continuously. He chirped his siren when he came to a light before going through the intersection. I've seen the video that Publicola posted. His siren was not continuously on. Uh, I think she went up on the hood, hit the windshield. Then when he hit the brakes, flew off the car. But she is dead. No, it's a regular person. Yeah. Yeah, just write a check. Just... Yeah, $11,000. She was 26 anyway. She had limited value. That officer you just heard claims that his side of the phone call is being taken out of context, that really he was bitterly mocking the city's legal system in which an attorney would minimize the value of a victim's life so the city could write as small a check as possible. Um, Just to that point, I'm, I'm not sure what the satire would be there. Seattle Times has reported elsewhere that there were 15 police misconduct wrongful death settlements in Washington state in 2021, totaling an average payout of $2.3 million, with the largest being $6 million. At any rate, Seattle's Office of Police Accountability is investigating um, 
Who wants to begin with reactions to this audio and the reaction to it? I thought I had somewhat healed, you know, considering how many days had passed and then just hearing it again. It is so it just brings up all of these emotions. You know, the idea that they were already thinking about a defense already, you know, as soon as it happened already. And it makes me wonder how often those conversations happen and which it's instead of really looking at the facts, thinking about how we're going to defend it. There's, I mean, the outrage is there. I have a lot of thoughts on it. I want to obviously share space and, and let you all react too. I'm sure you have feelings as well. The thing that, that stood out to me was uh, is the explanation, I think, for it. And that, that if, if, let's just say we take this explanation, okay? It was a joke. You're only hearing one side of it. I take that. We consider it. It's still not okay. It, it, it still doesn't. You know, it's like saying, you know, I I shot the sheriff, not the deputy. Like, either way, this is not okay. You're not giving us a scenario that is, you know, feasible. Spog just put out a— Spog is the police officer's guild, guild, the union. Uh, They put out a statement that kind of just reiterates everything that they've been saying. And I I don't feel that it leaves me more comfortable or or just in a different mindset than I was when we started. I haven't seen the statement. What did the guild say? Uh, it's horrifying. It was not said with malice. Um, Wait, they said it was not said with... Uh, Well, if you want me to say, the comment was not made with malice or hard heart. Quite the opposite is what I'm reading here. Um, They... They want this to be investigated quickly because they they argue that more information is going to come out in time. It's going to change the narrative of everything that's been going on. I'm not sure what is going to come from an investigation because they're they're going to talk to Solon, who's on the other side of this conversation, and that's the union president. Yeah, he's either going to say exactly what Otter said, or he's going to say I don't remember. You know, and I don't, I'm I'd be interested to see how far they get with that. Yeah, I think. Um... It, like like you said, Dyer, even if you were to take that explanation, the, the police officer's guild explanation at face value, it, it it's still, I think, just the fact that on one end of that conversation is the head of the police union and, and, and the person talking that we can hear is the vice president of the police union. So these are, you know, you see, we've seen a few statements saying, you know, this doesn't represent the Seattle Police Department. In fact, they, they do literally represent <laughs> uh, 13, well, you know, roughly a thousand members of the Seattle Police Department. And and I think um, even if it is true that it, it was sort of a joke or and, and it wasn't intended with malice, it's it's still just the the casualness and the the laughter and the sort of humor that comes with um, comes immediately following not not just like not just a death due to a crime that they're dealing with and sort of coping with, but the death at the hands of another police officer. I mean this John of Kandula had, had nothing to do with what this call was about. The person was ostensibly responding to a drug overdose, um, and and she was killed as a result of that. And so, um, you know, I, I think I've seen them sort of make the argument uh, about basically trying to call it gallows humor, that it's a way to cope. But 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 this wasn't this isn't just gallows humor because it's not just sort of dealing with the realities that they see every day on the street. This is, again, a, another Seattle police officer that has just killed someone. And so I think it's just the the um, tension there that people feel of, you know, this is a heartbreaking thing. And we see that the leadership of the police union um, joking about it. But should there, to your point, should there be space, though, for a conversation on the reality of 
where first responders, how, how they cope. And I'll just give you an example. I remember being, you know, a fresh faced journalist <sighs> in my in my 20s, starting the job and seeing some of the veterans and how sometimes callous they were on scenes. And I remember a vet, I was really upset over a story and a veteran journalist said to me, Angela, you have to stop this. He said, it will, if you don't learn to separate, this will take you down. And sure enough, in 2014, I'm dealing with all this anxiety, all of these things. And 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 I think when you get to the point, let's say if it is, let's say he's not a horrible person and let's say it could be this other thing, right? Let's just say, let's just say it could be. If it gets to the point where you are talking like that, thinking like that, acting like that, then maybe it's time for you to either go or it speaks to maybe the need for mental health services, especially for people who are first responders. Do you think there should be space for at least that conversation? I would just say that the difference, though, between, you know, reporters sort of joking or whatever, dealing with a, a tough assignment is, I mean, I think the the closer analogy would be if if one of your colleagues had done something that was, uh, you know, tragic, you know, if, if one of your colleagues had been involved mm-hmm. with the crime scene that was happening, it's not just that they're at a murder scene or a homicide scene and sort of cracking a joke to make them feel better. So they're cracking jokes right after one of their union members has has killed a, a young woman. And I right. think that's kind of the distinction. And, um, well, and, and, you'll, and you wonder how representative that is of a quote-unquote police culture, because if there's an insensitivity and a callousness, does that extend to how you treat someone when you're zooming through an intersection right. or someone's right. in crisis, et cetera? However, I do want to say, to respond to what you said, Angela, I appreciate that because I hear this kind of oversimplification, it's this or it's that, like if you suggest that there could be mental health issues with whether we're talking about ER doctors or or police and lots, you know, journalists, et cetera. If you talk about them becoming calloused, becoming, um, you know, having to compartmentalize, I think it's like if you I feel like if you acknowledge that, then some people treat you like you are then exonerating that officer and you're excusing all bad behavior when we can have an honest conversation. We can acknowledge, I think, I hope what you're saying and then also separately decide, well, OK, now do we want that person at least now to be anywhere near authority or a gun, et cetera? It's, it's so interesting that the conversation we are having right now, I just want the listeners to know this is the exact conversation that we had on our web team, that we had in our newsroom, that I think every newsroom probably had. This whole dark humor aspect came up to it. And I worked in a newsroom. I know where this comes from. I have police reports I wish I could purge from my memory. And all I did was read them. I didn't actually respond to them. So there's there's a certain understanding there. But this is where I come away. There is a difference between understanding and then what in the end is right or that's wrong right. or even yeah. legal. Or so. We yeah. can understand all day long, and that's yes. fine. But at the other end of this, you kind of have to uh, make up for you know, actions, it doesn't absolve you from actions that you take. So I guess that's where I come from. There's a difference between the understanding. Absolutely. And I agree with that. And speaking of actions, what's notable to me, especially at when you consider the international attention that this this audio, this video clip has received, that our leader, the leader of the police department has been silent as far as I know. I haven't seen, to me, it, it, I really do believe the whole silence is acceptance. I understand waiting to get all the information, but it's like when your department 
has had so much, um, I even hate to say bad publicity, like it's just bad behavior in some cases. You need to take a stand. You need to take a stand. And he could give a statement supporting, you know, his police department and saying who we want to be. And say, this wasn't us at our best. We are not okay with this, regardless of what the intent or what your heart was. At the end of the day, it hurt people. This young woman meant something to someone, to many people. Um, She was the whole regular person just, uh, it gets me. But it really, as a citizen, as a resident of the Seattle, Washington, I am really disappointed that Chief, Chief Diaz has not come out and taken a hard stand on this. And I think he can do both um, support his department and take a stand against this. What I've heard from the police chief, it just in, I don't now remember who reported it, but all I've heard was not a statement along the lines of the mayor's condolences and one person's comments doesn't represent the the department. But what I all I saw from the police chief is that because um, this this officer that you heard on tape had said he reported this when as soon as he realized he had left his body camera on he realized oh this is going to be this is going to look bad it's going to be taken out of context and that he reported this voluntarily the police chief has said that the department did not hear about it from that officer but from another employee who heard the footage during quote the routine course of business and took it up the chain of command i don't know whether those two things are totally exclusive but that's what i've heard from the police chief not the kind of statement you're describing right yeah and they, they wouldn't have to be mutually exclusive exclusive because um you know what what he did is he he reported himself to the office of police accountability for an investigation so it's possible that you know th- this this tape was circulating within the department before it became an official sort of accountability investigation uh what this is saying is he submitted himself to that investigation knowing that it was clearly not going to look good um you know there's some questions around timing um there there is Part of this is starting to come out because it became clear that several media outlets, including the Seattle Times, where I work, had filed records requests for it. Um, I don't know that I, I, I don't know the specifics of how the reporting has come together, but it was clear that this was going to come out um, one way or the other. And so I don't know when he filed the OPA complaint versus when it became clear this is going to be public. Um, mm. That'd be that'd be interesting. Can I put a question out there to folks, just as journalists covering Seattle and police? Bill, you've said something. Angela, you've said something. And it's it's all around culture. It's all around the police department we want to have. Specifically with Spog, have you noticed a different in difference in tone or vibe just in the last few years? And I say that because my own answer is yes, I have. Hmm. Um, but I'm just wondering if anybody has picked up on this definite kind of switch to a little bit more of an aggressive tone than previously. I don't think you have to speculate about that. I think the answer is definitively yes. Yeah. And it's because uh, the previous union president who was Kevin, Kevin Stuckey. Stuckey. Yeah. Okay. Kevin Stuckey. He, he was, he was widely viewed as very collaborative. He was um, yeah. a pretty active participant in the community police commission. He was, um, uh, you know, he, he had a really good relationship with the labor, you know, Martin Luther King County labor council. Um, and then he lost his reelection vote with Mike Solon, the current president, won with 75% of the vote over his 25%. So it's not that he stepped down, that Kevin Stuckey stepped down. It's that the the membership, um, you know, when Solon ran, his platform was this, basically. I'm going to take a more aggressive stance. He even made a little ad. He he hired a, a 
advertising firm to make himself a little yeah. video. Well, this had to do with the bitterness around criticism yeah. of the police on the part of the public, on the part of the city council. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he basically promised he was going to go on Fox News more and um, he started a podcast. And so his entire platform was we're going to get out ahead of criticism and we're going to fight back on it. Stucky's was I'm going to be collaborative. I'm going to continue what I'm doing yeah. now. I'm going to get you a good contract. And Solon won with 75% of the vote. So that to me was a fairly, you know, I, I don't even think it's speculation to say that was a shift. Uh, yes, yeah, Stucky wanted to hand out comic books to promote student literacy, whereas right. uh, Solon has leaned in this whole culture war YouTube battle thing. And I don't know if you've ever watched his podcast or listened to it, but it is it is definitely distorted graphics, very great. I, I feel as if Macho Man Randy Savage is going to pop out of that screen <laughs> at any moment and challenge everybody to a rumble. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the vibe that you kind of have going on with, the, with Spog now. When we talk about the culture, everybody has this view of the police department that they want to have. This is not it. Whether it's this video, whether it's that tombstone, whether it is the uh, the, the, that, that the mock tombstone there, that the it tombstone. turned out was in the police break room over right. the the microwave oven. I don't yeah. think anybody puts this on their checkbox of things that they would like to see from their police department. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it's just a really th- th- this issue of uh, police unions' place within the larger labor world has always been really interesting to me. Um, colleague Danny Westneat had written a little bit about this earlier this week, but just, um, you know, I think around 2020, the, the King County Labor Council, Council actually voted to kick Spog out of the labor uh, sort of union of unions. Um, and it's this kind of interesting tension where, you know, it's kind of a, a liberal sort of left-leaning stance, of course, to be pro-union and to mm-hmm. defend unions and to defend collective bargaining. But then when it comes to police unions, um you know, things get a little more complicated because yeah. unlike other unions, you know, police officers actually have, uh, you know, firearms and a legal right to, to take somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Um, we have seen, you know, the, the police department is now winding down its federal oversight. We have seen the federal judge in that case raise a few different times how he would love to be able to strip out accountability from collective bargaining with the police union. But we wouldn't allow that with, uh, you know, with other unions. Well, exactly. And that's that's what creates this really interesting tension is, uh, you know, people who might be in favor in theory of, um, you know, more reforms and more accountability for police, but who are also pro-union are sort of in this interesting situation where are they are they willing to sort of give up some of the police unions collective bargaining rights in favor of a kind of guaranteed uh, accountability reform platform? Mm -hmm. Uh, there's not an answer to that right now, but it's just it, it is a sort of broader and, and I think pretty interesting tension. Yeah, we need to move on if, unless there's a final thought before we do. I my final thought, just listening to what Dyer was saying about the change in tone, it reflects the changing ener- energy of our country in the last six or seven years. It's disheartening, but I'm not going to give up hope on what I know our police department can be and honestly is for so many really um, great public servants. It is a noble profession to go into harm's way and and be guardians of people in our community. And I hold the institution itself in high regard. And my hope is just that we can build, um, build these relationships 
I hate, I, I didn't want to use build back better. I'm like, so it's not what I'm trying to do. You know, those slogans get stuck in your head. But my point is, I want to repair mm. the relationship. Um, I would like to see us make that repair. Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, the, so final place to leave it, I guess, is that the Office of Police Accountability is investigating. That is within the city government. They, they have a civilian leadership, but the investigations are co-conducted with police sergeants and civilian investigators. And so, and I don't know what will stick, you know, and the union yeah. will, we've talked about the union has its own ability to defend officers against um, some accountability. So we don't know what's going to come out of that. Yes, yeah, Angela. I was just going to say, I mean, when you have union leaders who, you know, obviously inappropriate behavior, what recourse do the officers have? I mean, at this point, what recourse is there at all? Do we know? I'm out, but I don't know. Like you said, 75% is a pretty strong the fort. The former King County Sheriff John Urquhart told Cairo 7 that um, this, he called it graveyard humor, but also said it might be a fireable offense depending on what Police Chief Diaz decides is in the officer's heart. <laughs> so... Uh, We'll see. What's we, the legal definition of in the heart? In, in the heart, the yeah. Heart, yeah. Uh, we, we're going to pause here. Uh, we're just getting underway with our week in review. We had a lot to say about, uh, about this body cam footage and the investigation to come. Let's take a quick break, and we're not going to stop talking police when we return. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. We catch you up on what happened this week. Here are just a, a few sort of short items to pass on before we get back into our conversation. In case you missed it, another Bartell is closed. This one in Linwood. They've been closing down ever since Rite Aid bought Bartell. Uh, Rite Aid rumored to be about to file for bankruptcy as it's dealing with the lawsuits and debts from its opioid epidemic contributions. Gig Harbor is going to fly the pride flag outside the Civic Center next June for the first time. They decided that. New downtown Seattle pickleball courts debuting on Fifth Avenue near Denny with a tournament as Mayor Harold touts the new courts as part of his downtown reactivation plan. Meanwhile, there was a little pickleball controversy this week, not about how loud the sport is, but because there's a site in Interbay that's going to become a safe lot for people who live in their RVs while that lot is developed. The RV lot eventually is going to have to move because that land is going to become, that's right, pickleball courts. Uh, but it'll move someplace else and continue. Um, two more things. A Seattle uh, longtime VIP stepping away. Starbucks founder, former CEO Howard Schultz, leaving the company's board of directors. Uh, that's sort of a milestone in the city. And uh, finally, David, maybe you know about this, you being the Seattle Times transportation reporter. Uh, Tacoma's new line is going to go up the hill now, right? Sound Transit opening its uh, hilltop extension finally this weekend. That's right. 
Yeah. Okay, on it. Howard Schultz, do we think he's gone for good, though? Ah, he do we had... think he's gone? You know, he just has a way of coming back. I don't know. We'll see. True. He's, he's, he's somewhat Michael Jordan-esque. He thought he his... was a goner, but the Schultz came back. <laughs> well put. Okay, you're, uh, you're listening to That's Dyer Oxley who uh, from our, our web team here at KUOW, and we have Angela Poe Russell, a journalist, writer. We have uh, transportation reporter. David Croman here from the Seattle Times. Uh, we've been talking police, and let's not stop, because Seattle's uh, former police chief and former mayor will not face any charges, criminal charges, over thousands of missing text messages sent during Seattle's civil rights protests of 2020. KUOW's investigations editor, Isolde Raftery, reminded us that city officials deleted thousands of messages from their phones that were exchanged during the protests, messages concerning the evacuation of a police precinct. Just a very contentious period for the city. Here is uh, Isolde discussing that. The King County Prosecutor's Office called this a perfect storm of various problems. So you have former Mayor Jenny Durkin, who lost her text messages because someone, they don't know who, changed a setting in her phone. You also have former Police Chief Carmen Best, who admits to deleting her messages, but says she thought the city had been backing them up. And then you have... Fire Chief Harold Scoggins and others who simply forgot their phone passcodes, which meant that investigators were unable to get into their phone. So the result, no criminal charges. The prosecuting attorney in King County says investigators were not able to develop sufficient evidence to justify a criminal investigation. So does that mean these officials are exonerated or just that it's hard to prove intent beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal court? Depends on your definition of exonerated, I guess. I mean, I, innocent until proving guilty, I right. suppose. Um, I, yeah, my, my hunch is, I, I mean, I think we were just talking about looking into people's heart of hearts. Mm-hmm. I, I think the kind of challenge with the prosecution is, um, because it is, you know, it's a felony to intentionally delete public records. Uh, the intentional part is the, is the thing that you would need to prove. And, um, you know, there have been several investigations into this. Lots of reporting, lots of reporters asking questions, and we still don't have like a super clear answer of exactly what happened. We have several vague answers. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the prosecutor's office was thinking, but but it wouldn't surprise me if it was, you know, we th- this would have been an incredibly high profile and scrutinized case. And I, you know, I doubt the prosecutor would have wanted to bring a case that she didn't feel pretty confident she could win uh, against a former mayor and police chief. Also, uh, it was started under Dan Satterberg, her her predecessor. She uh, won election when Satterberg stepped down. So, you know. These are some powerful people. Do you think that (laughs) it really was not having enough evidence because of all of the circumstances that led to not having the info? Or do you think there was pressure? Oh, man, I'm not going to test that one. <laughs> I, I don't no blame idea. you. I tried. What can, can I say? Can we just, uh, the, the part that I, I keeps me up at night is the whole issue of they didn't know the passcodes to their phones, so the investigators couldn't look at I can get a teenager to jailbreak my phone if I wanted to, and they, right. they couldn't get into the phones to, yeah. to figure this out. Something about that. I think that was the case, right. if my memory serves, with the with the fire chief, the still current fire chief, Harold Scoggins. And I think he took the phone to some sort of, I get to the uh, Apple Store. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, what, yeah. I I feel you because I. It's hard for me to get over the idea that in July 2020, the crap is going down. 
someone changed the setting on the mayor's phone to delete all messages after 30 days. And then in late July, someone changed the setting back. But Wow, isn't that fascinating? But I'm not in Jenny Durkin's heart of hearts. <laughs> That's the other well, part you know what I thought was really noticeable about this, and I've been sitting here on my phone trying to find the quote, but Jenny Durkin re- released a statement. I don't know if, if someone's able to pull it up for us really quick. I've been searching because it stood out to me. Because if I'm just looking at this as a, as a typical citizen, which when I first read it, I was, and it seemed reasonable because she basically said, in a nutshell, the government has other things they should be focusing on. Gun violence, fentanyl. Seems like a reasonable argument over talking about something that happened three years ago. But the journalist part of me is like, no, 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 no. Public records matter. Transparency matters. We have the reason that it's so important. Okay, even if we move on from this, this sets a standard over what is acceptable and what is not for the democracy that we have. It relies on transparency and being able to for journalists and others to have access to the conversations that happen. So um, while, yes, we do have other big issues going on, this one matters as well. And so I didn't I, I get she's a lawyer, right? I mean, she's a lawyer, so she had to put it that way. But sorry, Jenny, public records do matter. So, so you bring up this public records thing, and this just sets me off on a little bit of a tangent. I, I I, my perspective of this was was colored a little bit by the fact that part of me is just not at all surprised to hear that public officials, even high-ranking elected officials, really are pretty clueless when it comes to public records or what. I mean, this was happening when I was in small town government reporting. They couldn't figure out the difference between their city email and their Gmail. This has happened in Seattle. This has been happening in the White House since computers arrived. People can't figure that stuff out. And it's just, whatever your question is, is this public or what? If the government gave it to you, it is not yours, okay? You don't have the ability to, to mess with that. We have to tell government employees they can't put social media apps on their phones. That's the fact we have to say that it just speaks to how kind of sad and big this problem is. What if, if they decide it's their job to know what's being said on on social if, media? If you are a public uh, relations person in the government, okay, good on you. But if you're somebody else, I don't know. The The point being is if, if your phone was given to you by the city, you, you don't go in there and start pressing buttons and messing around with it. These are public records. This is not your phone. Chief, Be- uh, the, the former chief police chief, Carmen Best, said she didn't know that, that these texts weren't all backed up on the cloud. And I didn't know that either. I assume they are. Yeah. Like I've, I've, I always figured they could find them somewhere. I mean, here's the thing. I, I believe that in some of these cases, like there may be a huge learning curve. Absolutely. So my question is, what are we going to learn from this? What has changed since then? They were saying, OK, it was changed to keep the messages for 30 days and then back. Is there now an official rule in place that it's like that everyone knows so they can follow it? I don't have a day. And again, I bop around and read different things. I don't remember who where who reported this. It might have been KUOW, but it but I did copy the line that the city did agree to program all city phones to retain text messages, period. I don't know an amount of time if that means forever, if that means everything. But there's been some sort of shift coming out of this. And by the way, there was a big settlement over this, um, because these there are businesses, these Capitol Hill businesses sued because they because of the damage inflicted on their businesses during the the protests and the the you know, they pulled out of the precinct. But that 
that's already happened. There were sanctions and millions of dollars in settlements. So I don't know whether the criminal, the lack of criminal charges affects anyone other than the people who are not being criminally charged. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And the, and the judge, if I recall from, from that case, sort of explicitly instructed jurors to see the missing text messages as like a, a hit against the city, that they should assume that those are, were important and should have been retained. Uh, the and, judge found evidence that those were intentional deletions. It's right. a different standard. You know, that's not a criminal beyond reasonable doubt. But this judge certainly thought it's, yeah. it stank. Yeah, exactly. And the, and so the city paid for that. Yeah. Uh, they have insurance to cover these things. So it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not going to disrupt city business well, immensely. As- but, but yeah, I mean, as far as, it, I, I, again, it's just, it's the, the bar for criminal charges is high. I have no insight into the thinking behind this. Um, I, you know, I think it was always going to be. I would have been more surprised had criminal charges gone forward. I'll say that than I am that they did not. Yeah. Okay. We're we're running a little behind, which just means we have a lot to say. But I want to get in the the uh, again. We're we're on the police beat here on KOW's Week in Review. We've been following this issue of public drug use in Seattle. Will police? make arrests? Will the city let its prosecutor take the cases? We've got this new statewide law that makes public drug use and possession a gross misdemeanor. But you'll remember in June, the Seattle City Council voted not to implement that law in the city. This week, though, KUW reporter Amy Radel told us a city council committee debated a new version of that ordinance, and this time they approved it. It contains the new criminal penalty, but urges police to divert people away from arrest and toward services. Here's committee chair Lisa Herbold. The law before us today states that diversion is the preferred approach, um, and this takes place before any arrest in many cases. Councilmember Teresa Mosqueda voted against the proposal, saying the council can't be assured that the city will adequately fund these diversion programs. I want us to be spending our time and investments on focusing on how we get people into public health services, not how we double down and recreate a punitive system within our own city to try to prosecute more people. So here's all I want to know. It's not much. Will Seattle police make arrests for public drug use? Does the city have the capacity to prosecute public drug users? If they're convicted, will they go to jail? Will they go to treatment? What kind of treatment? How much treatment? I'm not leaving here until we definitively answer. And you only want yes or Uh no answers to those? We're we're in trouble. (laughs) Here's the thing that stands out to me about this. The the first bill that comes out uh, basically says we're going to sync our city law up with state law and diversion and treatment is the preferred first approach to all of this. But then they said, no, we don't like that. We're, we're nixing that. They have a big work group. They bring up a new proposal. Mayor Harrell has a new proposal, and it says diversion and treatment is the first approach that we prefer on all this, and now they're pushing this one forward. So I'm having difficulty seeing any real difference between what we already saw and what we're seeing now, other than the fact that Harold has said he's going to throw a few more million dollars at uh, some treatment options and things like I'm not sure exactly how effective that will be. But in the end, sure, we sync up our law with the state law, but are we actually going to have any treatment to send somebody to, any diversion to send somebody to? Hey, you're just asking my question. Wait a minute. (laughs) All I can say is thank you for making me feel less crazy because I was doing this. I was sitting here like I'm trying to understand the difference. And yeah, so I was thinking. So when you said that, I was like, (laughs) yeah. 
No, it's okay. Yeah. You're not alone. Well, you know, this version of the law appears to give police a little more leeway, arguably, mm-hmm. on whether to make an arrest. It says they may, they right? May, they may yes. make an arrest. They may decide whether the drug user presents a threat of harm to others. But the, but the definition, what constitutes harm is even vague. Like, does that just mean there's street disorder and that's harmful to the city? So it's, it is unclear. And it hasn't even passed the council yet, but it's right. unclear what's going to happen. Well, in, the, in, in Seattle, I mean, that has kind of been the reality on the ground in Seattle for uh, ten, more than 10 years at this point. Because the law enforcement, they, they've changed their name since then, but the law enforcement assisted diversion program kind of got its start in Seattle, which was really the first program in the country you know uh, post-arrest diversion has been very common this was the first pre-arrest diversion and so it was really baked into law enforcement that instead of arresting particularly drug users you know the the drug that they're talking about has sort of changed over the years but Mm -hmm. instead of making that arrest you could contact people from lead the law enforcement assisted diversion program and connect them with social workers and 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 there wasn't a law sort of saying that was true. It was just these programs existed, and there was this pr- sort of handshake agreement between the police and this program to to make that happen. And so, uh, sure, I mean, I guess this puts us in the law, but like I think on the ground, this you know, the police have been using discretion as to whether or not to arrest somebody or send them to someone who might help them with treatment for for many many years. Um, yeah. The, the the question goes back to yours, which is, it's <laughs> lead has always been very stretched. Um, even when they do inherit or, you know, take on somebody as a client, their options for where they send them are, are limited. Um, you know, I think it did make a, di- you know, there, there were as a result, fewer arrests of drug users when this program came into, into being. And so there was an effect and, um, you know, maybe fewer people cycling through the jail, but um, there has not really been commensurate sort of alternative or treatments that have mm-hmm. scaled up to the same level that the jail has. To, well, to his credit, I should just throw out there that Harold's proposal does include 27 million. That was the million I Yes, that's a great earlier. point. Yeah, yeah. actually, but I don't know how much of that, back it up. But yeah. I don't know how much of that is, is necessarily new money. I think some of that uh, was going to kick in anyway. I don't know oh, the okay. full details. From that, that settlement. Yeah. yeah. Because that was like the sticking point when it came up before, I think back in June, was that we didn't have you know, the infrastructure in place. So I think this was supposedly to address that. But I mean, here's a clue. Here's a little clue that maybe with this bill, if it gets passed, that it's not going far enough. The Downtown Seattle Association, I believe it was in the KOW article, said that if this doesn't work in terms of having the desired effect in 60 days, then we need to go back and basically start over. So to me, them saying that is saying, okay, you can give this a shot. But if this doesn't work in 60 days, we need something done about this now. Right. Meaning they want to see the drug markets broken up on on 3rd and on Jackson and that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. So they want it. They're calling for arrest. But yeah, this leads us back to the arrest. And then what? You know, what pro what treatment? What what capacity to prosecute people, et cetera? Because misdemeanors are maximum. 364 day sentences mm-hmm. we're not talking about putting drug users away forever and you know they do get out eventually and um, you know there's there's pretty good data that shows uh people are much are at much higher risk of overdosing and dying after they get out of jail because their uh tolerance has gone down while they're in jail and so mm-hmm. they come back out use maybe the same amount that they uh, had wanted to use that they had been used to using before going to jail um, and might end up deadlier. And so, you know, it is, it is, a, you know, arresting 
does one thing. Maybe you, you, you move people off the streets for a little bit, but it, it still hasn't answered that question of what happens. But anecdotally, later. we've had people who I, I, I several I've had several um, interviews with people who were former drug users, and they said it was jail that helped them when they were sober enough to actually turn this around. Yep. So I've you have people who've been directly impacted saying, you know, I needed to hit that rock bottom. And the question is, is this path of I know we're going to talk a little bit about this later of staying in a hotel, use all the drugs you want until you're ready to go to treatment. Is that effective? I would love to see more data on that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether we have time to get to that because it's we have 14 minutes left in the show. But oh, you're referring no. to you're referring to a, a piece in the Seattle Times that were that was saying that uh, you know King County and Seattle and others they use these hotel shelters because it started in the pandemic because you wanted to. Keep people safe Keep from COVID, people right? From yeah. COVID, but and and, and there's you, you, people can be you can be private. You can have a locked door. You can have some solitude. Hopefully, some peace to f- plot your next move. But on the other hand, if you're using now, you're using alone, and and you just might die alone of, of your overdose and not get checked on. Right. And I just wanted to add because I was able to find that quote from the Downtown Seattle Association, and I wanted to make sure I reflected their statement. What they said is after 60 days. If their approach to addressing the drug crisis leads to more people in treatment and fewer deaths, like that'll be so more people in treatment, fewer deaths. Mm. And I think that's fair for any legislation that we pass. Okay, that's a little different. We need to look at like what's been the impact of this. And if it's not turning us in a new direction, shift and fast. Mm. Okay, Uh, let's take a break again and come back and and power through the last uh, 13 minutes of our show. Week in Review on KUOW. That's host, writer, producer, Angela Poe Russell, KUOW's Dyer Oxley, Seattle Times' David Croman, and we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in here to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I'm sure you've heard about the wonders and dangers of artificial intelligence. The Seattle area has a lot of AI companies. Most notably, Microsoft has invested billions of dollars into the California company that makes the chatbot GPT-4. This week, Microsoft President Brad Smith and other experts testified to a Senate committee about how the government should regulate AI. Smith testified that Microsoft supports guardrails, but Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri criticized Microsoft for AI products they've already launched. Here's a bit of their exchange, starting with Microsoft's Brad Smith. I think as we go forward, we have an increasing capability to learn from the experience of real people and yeah, put the that, right See, that's what worries me. That's exactly what worries me, is what you're saying is we have to have some failures. I don't want 13-year-olds to be your guinea pig. This is what happened with social media. We had social media who made billions of dollars giving us a mental health crisis in this country. They got rich. The kids got depressed, committed suicide. Why would we want to run that experiment again with AI? Dyer, how does Microsoft say Congress should regulate AI? They, uh, Brad Smith in particular brought this up, but other folks have brought this up as well. I think OpenAI brought this up when they spoke to Congress. They, the idea now is to promote an agency that would oversee every new kind of technological advancement in artificial intelligence. He uses the example of this is like what happens when you bring Boeing in with a new model of airplane and they have to go through a bunch of federal regulations and oversight to make sure this thing is fit to fly. They want to do something similar with technology, particularly AI, and say, is this fit for everybody to use for public consumption 
get that safety thing out of the way in advance. Um, the, the thing about this, though, that is that is kind of concerning is, uh, well, many things are kind of concerning about AI, primarily in the fact that the awareness around it just doesn't – is not there for the, the general public. And I think that creates a lot of fear around it. There's a lot of good things that are going to come from AI, um, but there are also a lot of very dangerous and concerning things. Holly was just talking about the influence on kids, for example, that this could potentially have. Everybody is still very much skittish about what social media has done to screw all of us up, you know, and it has, and the kids in particular uh, developing minds. Um, but my concern coming up, and I'm not sure there's an agency that can regulate this yet, um, we have an election coming up, and AI is already messing with politics and it can do it at such a rapid pace that we are not able to catch up. It's that, it's that old thing that falsehood flies and the truth comes, you know, stumbling after it. Mm-hmm. We don't have a cool catchphrase for what AI is going to do with misinformation and disinformation in the future. There there are already fake Nirvana songs that sound like Nirvana out there. There's already a Kurt Cobain version of Smashing Pumpkins today, and you can't tell the difference. Like, this is how accurate and real that it can be displayed to people. And uh, coming through this next uh, election coming up, I'm, I'm a little worried about the nightmare that's going to emerge mm. just from having AI in th- this election now. Mm. We are so behind on this, and that's yeah. what really scares me. And the other piece of it is just how, you know, they had this hearing, but how soon will they be able to act on this? Yeah. I mean, we, we always know that that sometimes our laws just, they are not keeping pace with technology, and it's already so advanced. Uh, the example that they brought up in, in this hearing was the New York one of I, one of the lawmakers. It was the New York Times article where I guess with this reporter had this exchange with. Uh, oh, Kevin Roos. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 The, 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 sorry. Go on. No, you, you tell explain. It, you, Set us up. Well, Set just us up. Uh, just that the chat bot uh, basically in this long conversation uh, came around to telling Kevin Roos, I love you and. And oh, and told him he wasn't happy in his marriage. Yes, yes. Oh, seriously. And then I and insisted that they don't want you to know who I am, but I am Sydney and I am this. It reminded me of Short Circuit. Are y'all too young to remember Short Circuit? Johnny Five. Johnny alive. Five is like, no, you don't understand. I'm alive. And that's what this Sydney, it is wild. Yeah. And so we have, I know legislation usually moves slowly, but this is not one we have time to. Um, to move about in the traditional manner. Which brings me back to my prediction that someone is going to fall in love with their computer. Um, When you bring this up that we just don't catch up, the law that they're looking at uh, modifying here is a Communications Act from 1996, I believe, that they have to tweak in order to protect kids in this regard. There's a section of that. That was an update to a communications law from the 1930s. So this is how much time is going past for us to... Technology changed dramatically from the 30s to the 90s. I don't even think technology is recognizable today from the 90s. Yeah. Oh. David, were you going to say something? No, you just you're you're scared too. <laughs> you're scared I think. Too. Yeah, I, um, I I mean it is like I I think at this time last year I had not heard of Chat GPT mm. or heard you know and 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 now just imagining how sort of deeply ingrained that is and the the speed with which this is evolving is quite something. And and I think there are several versions of chat GPT that have not yet been released to the public. And so, um, yeah, my, my, my biggest fear with this is just, is a little more, uh, kind of holistic around like what you were saying about the Kurt Cobain thing, just art yeah. and creation. I just feel like 
so much of what makes people people and what makes like life uh, interesting and, and worth living is creation and creativity. And um, I just am, am deeply uneasy uh, with the idea of just kind of willy-nilly turning that over to computers. Um, yeah. You guys are just talking about GPT. That's not even the uh, fatal, the doomsday scenarios of you give computers a task and the, the computer the isn't going to say, well, I've got my limits. I'm yeah. not going to do anything to do that. But computer just, I've been tasked. And so how, why wouldn't the computer know, here's, what, here's the connections I've got to make because we're going to wire it into the internet, right? There's going to be plugins and all kinds of apps. And so how do we know that, the, that, that, that computer networks aren't going to be able to network with other computers and hack into this and that and, oh, yeah. and do whatever you tell and, it to and do? This, you know, Brad Smith make, made a really good point about why regulation is needed because if Mike, Microsoft, let's say, is trying to abide by a certain set of standards and others aren't, you know, business-wise, it puts them at a disadvantage. And then, of course, it's the wild, wild west again. So, yeah, such such a rich topic for sure. Indeed. One end of this scenario that we're talking about, I'll I, let you finish this I think, topic is up, the sorry. Skynet scenario from Terminator. And then the other scenario <laughs> is the her scenario. And uh, the scenario I think that, that the tech sector is dreaming of is, is my preferred scenario, which is the Star Trek scenario, in which AI is like the computer on the Enterprise. And we just say, hey you know, help me make the simulation. And, and it's it's a it's a helpful uh, part of our process and so forth. And I think that's what they're looking at it. But the uh, I would encourage everybody to look at a BBC report recently of folks that are already putting AI into making YouTube videos that are going up the charts and getting into the educational feeds of children. And they are telling them that the aliens made uh, pyramids for power production and all mm-hmm. this stuff. And it's coming across just as scientific and real to them. Yeah. And that's happening now. Are we going to end the show with something to smile about? (laughs) Can we do that? Uh, Well, I guess I smile about the Star Trek uh, scenario for about (laughs) half a second. Okay, I'll just say, because we we always end the show with something something nice. I personally thought it was nice not to read about seismic activity at the Beyonce concert. I have Angela here to tell me in person what happened. But I bring this up because remember the Marshawn Lynch run of like 10 years ago, and it was a, it registered on the seismic reader, and it was Beast Quake. Fantastic. And then, but then every time there'd be a big concert, the media would trot out the seismic angle, like Taylor Swift, you know, and... And I and and I just assume that Beyonce, Angela, I assume the concept that you all made the earth shake too little for anyone else to feel it, but enough to register on very sensitive equipment. I think we can assume that. Let the news editors write about something else, pickleball noise, and uh, uh, but you tell me, did you, the you ground, know, did the earth move last you night? You know, I don't know if the earth moved, but our voices cracked. I can say that because <laughs> yeah. there's there's a part in Beyonce's concert, and this is what made me smile. Her song "Love on Top" really popular, mm. and there's a segment where the audience sings it, and and they keep going higher and higher. And I have never seen out of all her shows that I see on the internet, the audience, the Seattle audience, I think they went eight times taking the note higher and higher and higher. Wow. And Beyonce just took off her glasses and kind of just looked at everyone. It was pretty. That made me smile. We had a lot of fun. Wow, the Seattle falsetto. That pretty much <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Anything else before we go? We got one minute. Uh, there was a man drowning in Florida, and that is not what made me smile. Okay. But a 12-year-old saved him with CPR, and he learned that CPR from watching Stranger Things. And that made wow. me smile. Wow. See? About that? <laughs> staying alive, the staying alive rhythm. That's great. <laughs> uh, David, is there anything to smile about? Uh, I've, the, the, the Coho runs or the, the Salmon runs oh, have been yeah. fun. Every, I yes. take the ferry a lot, and every time I see 
I just look out the window, see fish jumping all over the place. Really? It's fun to watch. We got to cool. check in on the fish with the chunk taken out by the seal, because <laughs> yeah. we did a couple weeks ago. It was headed to Issaquah last we checked, and this miraculously surviving fish. Yeah, strong strong salmon runs, it's, for yeah, God's it's sake. fun to get a little nature in my day-to-day. Yeah. yeah. It was so surprise. wonderful bidding to meet you in person, by the way. Thank this you, is, Angela. You're so warm. Oh, wow. You guys <laughs> never like tell me that. It, it makes us Thank. smile to come in and see Bill. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Angela Poe Russell. You are so insightful uh, and and uh, and an excellent journalist and host and writer producer. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, KOW online editor, Dyer Oxley. Much love. Thank you. Seattle Times transportation reporter, David Croman. Tip of the hat. Thank you. you. I also think you're warm, Bill, I promise. Back at you. Let's just hang out all day together. we gotta get, We got to get off the air and just hang out. Uh, Kevin Kinestad, also a good guy, produces the show. Thank you to Guy Nelson for running the board for us today, and we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>